Hello again, this is Alan Lightman. Our three-part public television series, Searching Our Quest for Meaning in the Age of Science, continues premiering on PBS stations nationwide and remains accessible on pbs.org through May 2023. After that, many stations will offer the series to members in their passport collection. All programs will continue streaming on Searching for Meaning .org in both English and in Spanish with closed captions thanks to the support from the U.S. Department of Education. My on-camera conversations for searching captured some fascinating material from a diverse cast of characters, Nobel laureates, MacArthur geniuses, leading researchers in biology, neuroscience, physics, and astronomy, plus philosophers, ethicists, faith leaders, and a humanoid robot. These podcasts share more of that material than we can include in the broadcast series. And I gratefully acknowledge that both the series and these podcasts are made possible by a grant from the John Templeton Foundation. This conversation is with Nergis Mavovala, the first female Dean of Science at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT, where I teach. After immigrating from Pakistan and studying at MIT with Nobel laureate Ray Weiss, Professor Mavovala was a key collaborator in the development of LIGO, the Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory. In 2015, LIGO detected gravitational radiation from the collision of two black holes more than a billion light years from Earth. Albert Einstein, perhaps the 20th century's greatest scientist, predicted the existence of gravitational waves back in 1915, but thought that they would be too faint to ever be detected. It took 40 years of efforts by Ray Weiss, Nergis Mavovala, fellow Nobel laureates Kip Thorne and Barry Barish, and hundreds of others to prove Einstein wrong. By the way, Kip Thorne was on my PhD committee at Caltech, so I was thrilled to see him honored with the Nobel. I asked Nergis if actually detecting gravitational waves made the LIGO team smarter than Einstein. And I haven't even talked about the details of the of the instrumentation, which was just another league of precision, you know, compared to what Einstein knew was possible. Uh, so he was right. He was right to think it was foolish and hopeless. I'm, I'm glad there were people who were foolish enough to think it was possible, and Ray Weiss was one of them. And here we are. Nergis and Ray shared a love of building things and designing instruments that had never existed previously. I love the idea of reaching a frontier in precision that hadn't been done before. Like other researchers we spoke with, Nergis thinks that cutting-edge science benefits from personalities who like living on the edge. And then the last piece of it for me was I actually really liked living on, uh, you know, being, being a maverick and a fringe, you know, living on the fringes. And this was a scientific fringe right there. And so I thought, okay, you know, these are my people. We spoke in the cramped and sometimes noisy workshop for LIGO instrumentation at MIT. 
I started our conversation by asking Nurgis how life had changed after she became MIT's Dean of Science. Nice to see you again, Nurgis. You too, Alan. I haven't seen you since you've become Dean of Science. Yes, I, for good reason. I have not been seeable. <laughs> what, is it, what is it like to be Dean of Science at MIT? You know, it's, it's, it's a lot of very interesting puzzles to solve. And uh, I'm used to solving scientific puzzles, and now there's also a good, in good measure, uh, uh, other kinds of puzzles to, to solve. People puzzles, space puzzles, uh, budget puzzles. And so it's very interesting. As a colleague at MIT, I had to ask Nervous about perhaps the most mundane but challenging aspects of campus life. What about parking puzzles? Oh, don't even go there. <laughs> there is no solution. Uh, ride a bicycle. <laughs> well, speaking of bicycles, I understand that when you were growing up in Pakistan that you fixed bicycles. So, you know, part of my, my childhood was I inherited a, a really beat up uh, old bicycle from my much older cousin. Uh, but it was beat up and most of the time it didn't work and I had never had any money to fix it. So I forged a, an arrangement with uh, the, the local bicycle repair shop where I would repair my own bike there, but in exchange for some of my labor, the, the bike shop uh, guy would give me parts for my bike. And so I, I sort of learned, uh, it was a very rudimentary shop. It wasn't a fancy bike shop. It was, uh, it was in a part of a shanty town. And so it was really a, a good learning experience. Is do you think that that's where your interest in building things or in science began, or was it later than that? You know, I think it was all part of uh, part of the journey. Certainly, it was. It, you know, my interest must have preceded it because I thought I could do this and should do this. But then I think I enjoyed it. I I think my first taste for really sort of building things in the context of of research was actually as an undergraduate and when I went, worked in a lab. And my advisor in, in, in my lab when I was an undergraduate had begun his faculty position just months before I arrived. So there was this empty lab, lots of ideas, lots to be built because he was building it on a shoestring. And that's, I think, where I got my biggest exposure to building. And, and you know, it was an optics lab, so building with some precision. Uh, but also because it was things were being built on a shoestring, you, just, you couldn't just look at a catalog and say, we'll have you know, three of those. You had to build it. So I learned how to build flexures, gimbal mounts. We even built our own laser. And I think few undergrads can, can you know, have that kind of experience. Because most of the time, unless you're a laser lab that's in the, in the business of researching laser, you just buy one and you turn it on, you plug it in, you turn it on, and it should work. And so that was really, really fun. Could you imagine then that you would be working on lasers with the most advanced gravitational detector in the world? I, you know, I couldn't imagine it then, and I can hardly believe it now. So, yeah, no. I, you know, it's one of these things where I knew that's what I love to do, but I had no way of knowing when I was a first-year or a second-year undergraduate that I would go to graduate school at MIT, I would meet Ray Weiss, that I would start working on LIGO at a time when it was seen as this maverick project that's never going to work. Ray Weiss is now in his 90s, but remains active and engaged in LIGO research. We'll feature him in another podcast, but you can catch his passion and energy in our third program, where he and Nergis tag team to describe how LIGO works. Why waste your precious graduate school years on this? And, you know, it only took 25 years to 
to prove the naysayers wrong, but it was a hell of a journey along the way. One of those naysayers was, was Einstein himself. Uh, yeah. Even though his theory predicted the existence of gravitational waves, he was very adamant about saying that, that they would be far too weak to ever be detected. So I know you probably don't consider yourself as, as smart as Einstein, but what did you and Ray Weiss know that he didn't know? Well, let, let's be clear. I knew almost nothing. Ray Weiss knew a hell of a lot more, right? Because I mean, when I started, when I first met Ray, I hadn't even heard of a gravitational wave. I didn't even know such a thing was out there to be discovered. Um, I mean, since then, I've learned a lot. So I think there's many, many things that, you know, there was a confluence of many things that made these discoveries with gravitational waves possible. Uh, the, the first, of course, it began with Einstein telling us that the theory predicts them. But then it took almost 100 years till they were directly observed. And I think part is many pieces to that. Part of it was the technology. So if you ask, you know, what was so special about something like LIGO being, you know, put forward for, you know, large level of national funding in the, in the 70s and then all the way into the 90s. So in the 1960s, 1960, the laser was discovered. And that was the first time that you could use the quantum precision of light to do precision in ophrometry. So in ophrometry, like Michelson and Morley had done it, it was taken to a whole other level by many orders of magnitude by the, the, the coherence of the laser. So that was the first thing. And then in the late 1960s, there was the discovery of neutron stars and you know, putatively uh, black holes. And I think that was, if there's one thing Einstein probably didn't know, it was that, that these objects really exist because they were discovered after his death. And if you look at the gravitational wave emission from ordinary stars that populate galaxies like our own sun, it is actually minuscule and it is hopeless to imagine that the orbits of such stars could give you know, any measurable gravitational wave. So he was right to think they were impossible to measure. But the discovery of these compact objects, neutron stars and black holes, I think really gave people the sense that they, these objects exist. And if they do, then of course we should be able to see gravitational radiation from them. So I think that was a turning point. And then I would say maybe 20 years later, another important turning point was when people started to be able to, to think about solving Einstein's very difficult equations uh, with computers. And that allowed us to think about not only, oh yeah, gravitational waves exist, but what would they look like in our instrument? What would the signatures of them be? And, and then finally, again, due to the power of computation, uh, we also learned how we can find these faint you know, signals in our very noisy data. So all of that had to come together. And it sounds so easy when I describe it in a couple of minutes, but that was really a century of, of technology and the accumulation of, of knowledge. Uh, and I haven't even talked about the details of the, of the instrumentation, which was just another league of precision, you know, compared to what Einstein knew was possible. Uh, so he was right. He was right to think it was foolish and hopeless. I'm, I'm glad there were people who were foolish enough to think it was possible, and Ray Weiss was one of them. And here we are. So when you when you started working with Ray Weiss in the early 1990s, you just said that you didn't know anything about gravitational mm -hmm. waves at that time. Why did you start working with him? So the first thing was when he described to me the, the precision of the measurement that was needed. I mean, I thought he was completely insane. I thought it was insanity to try to make such a measurement. But then, you know, I, I looked at the very early 
papers he had written on this, so the, the unpublished paper, and he laid out a way in which it could be done that was plausible. Uh, and then I think the other parts of it was I loved the idea of reaching a frontier and precision that hadn't been done before. I love the idea that if we succeeded at that, which is an, kind of an experimental triumph, we might be able to see gravitational waves which had never been seen before. And then the last piece of it for me was I actually really liked living on, uh, you know, being, being a maverick and a fringe, you know, living on the fringes. And this was a scientific fringe right there. And so I thought, okay, you know, these are my people. Did, did people think it was a fringe because they thought that the, the strength of the, of the signal or gravitational waves would be so weak that we wouldn't be able to detect it? And I think there was multiple layers, uh, for uh, multiple reasons for the skepticism. The one was, would we ever be able to build an instrument that reached this precision, given that all everything, all the technologies that would have been required, each had to be pushed to its very edge and then some. So that was the first piece, would the instrument be precise enough? And then the second piece was, does nature really behave the way we think? Will these gravitational waves be strong enough? Will there be enough? You know, will there be objects out there that we can see? And then the third thing that was there was, you know, given these uncertainties, should this even be funded at the levels that was needed? And so I think the skepticism was, I think it was pretty justified, but you also have to, we as humans have to have, a, have some imagination and vision, and we also have to have some part of our, our work should be risky. Now, everybody has their favorite number for what fraction of the science we fund should be really risky. You know, but I think, you know, pick a number, quarter of it should be things that are really out there, high risk, high reward, and the rest of the time, you can be a little bit safer. And this was out there, you know, just... Uh, and then for my own self, you know, speaking about the risks of, well, what if we never measure anything? I became very clear that the journey would be worth it. And, and the reason was that these technologies that we were inventing, and we had to more or less invent them because there was nothing you could buy off the shelf that would do the job for you, were going to be useful. They were going to teach us about new parts of science and, and physics. And so it kind of felt like, for me personally, it didn't feel risky. It felt like we were just going to be making discoveries, even if it wasn't a gravitational wave. And that was really, you know, once you realize that, how can you say no? So even though my understanding is that gravitational waves themselves do not have much of a practical application, but it sounds like you're saying that the new technologies invented along the way were sort of worth it in themselves. You can talk about almost any aspect of the LIGO detectors, and there are inventions in there that have been used in other places. When you think about vibration isolation, which is the process by which we take the mirrors of LIGO and we hold them so still against all the external forces that want to kick them around that they respond to the passing gravitational wave. When you look at that technology, that's the same technology that is used, for example, in semiconductor fab. You need that level of, of vibration isolation. If you look at all of, you know, think about this moment in time, 2021, and you think about all the, the excitement for quantum sensing and quantum metrology, that is, some of that was invented for LIGO and has made its way into other parts of socially impactful, societally impactful technology. So yeah, I think that, you know, and you can never predict when you're starting off which part of the technologies you, you invent will be the most useful. But you have to know that if you're 
as humans, if we're innovating, someone else is going to come along and take your innovation and do something else with it, sometimes for good and sometimes for bad. Hi there, Alan Lightman chipping in. I hope you podcast listeners don't think that my producers and I are copping out, but it's difficult to explain how LIGO works without animations and pictures. So this podcast is going to concentrate more on the significance of LIGO rather than the technicalities of how it works. So, so can you talk a little bit about what your personal contribution to LIGO has been? What have you worked on yourself? Yeah, so, you know, I, I've been involved with LIGO for long enough that even my involvement has had chapters, if you will. Um, so when I was a graduate student in, in Ray Weiss's group at MIT, um, I was tasked with solving the following problem. So for LIGO to have large amount of laser power, we have something called optical cavities, which is a pair of mirrors facing each other. And very much if you put, as if you, you know, put your own head between two mirrors, you see multiple reflections. The idea was that the laser light should bounce many, many times between the two mirrors. And now there's, and that's something we knew how to do. Um, but there was a problem, which is for the light to bounce multiple times between the mirrors without getting lost, you know, just walking off the mirrors, you needed to align these two mirrors to face each other with the precision of 10 nanoradians. And no one knew how to do that. No one knew how to do that by over a factor of, of 10,000. And so my <laughs> doctoral thesis was on developing the method for aligning the LIGO mirrors with that precision. For those of you who don't happen to know what a nanoradian is, it's about one-tenth of one millionth of a degree. In other words, teeny tiny. And a radian is about 57 or 58 degrees, something like that. Yeah, so, so you're right, talking three, about one, one million, one, not one billionth, billionth, billionth. of a few degrees. Yes, exactly. So it's, 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 that's right. It's a, it's a billionth, close to a billionth of a degree. I think that's right. So yeah. And so that was the that was the challenge. And so I was an experimentalist. So I, you know, I first worked out how to do it. And then we built a little mini LIGO, a one meter big mini LIGO in the labs at MIT. And we showed that we could do that. And one of the things that was really shocking to me is that that system that, you know, I and, and, and my colleagues and as a graduate student designed is still in use in, in, in LIGO. And why is it so mind boggling to me? Because it's actually really crummy. It, it was really a really difficult system to work with. And I'm just stunned that there hasn't been better ideas uh, in, in the intervening you know, 25 years. And that is, was the part that bothers me. Not that you know we use it still, which is on one hand kind of cool, but really it shouldn't be. I, I wish some of my books would still be read 25 years from now. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. That's, that's pretty good. But, uh, so so um, you've described a little bit of the history of LIGO and a, and a little a sketch mm -hmm. of, of how it works. What is the, the significance of LIGO? I mean, why should we be devoting 40 years plus and its development, all of the technology, all of the thousands of people have worked on it? Why are we doing that? What, what is the meaning of, of LIGO? Yeah, so, you know, there's, again, many layers to, to, to that answer, the, you know, and different people are motivated by different pieces of, of the, the answer to that question. So the one part, of course, is if we care about understanding where we came from as humans, at some point, it's not enough to study history. It's not enough to study archaeology or paleontology. You have to get off the planet. Our history comes from the universe. They know we were born off the universe. 
So to me, this is just an extension of understanding where we come from when we study the universe or when we uh, try to understand astrophysics. So that's the one piece. Now, why, where does gravitational waves fit into that picture of the universe? It fits in, in a really important and fundamental way, which is that it allows us, these technologies we've developed allow us to observe parts of the universe that don't give off light and black holes, for example. And you can say, well, you know, black holes are, are, are nifty, but, you know, why do we care? Well, it turns out they are the fun among the fundamental building blocks of why the universe looks the way it does today. Without black holes, our universe couldn't look the way it does. And so we should understand what they, you know, how, how, they, they, how they're born, how they live, how they die, and their role in the formation of the universe. And so that's the top level, science, you know, that allows us to understand our own origins. Then there's a second piece to this, which is, is advancing experimental science and technologies. And that's something, again, when you do something that where the end point is so far from where you began in terms of, of technical capabilities, you know, invention and innovation have to come out of that, and it did. So that's another reason to do this. And then the third point, which should, should never be lost, is that in the process of doing this kind of big science, federally funded science, there have been two generations of scientists trained. And those have gone out. They don't all work on LIGO anymore. They're actually populating all parts of you know, the science and technology enterprise in this country and worldwide. And that's the, the third. So when you say, what's the significance? Why do we do this? It's for fundamental understanding and discovery. It's for technology development. And it's for training new generations of scientists. So you, you worked on LIGO for at least a couple of decades mm -hmm. before there was any discovery. Yeah. Uh, well, Maybe three decades. No, two, 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 and, two and a half. Two and a half decades. Twenty-five, 25 years. years. You know, so my, my my very first encounter with Ray Weiss when I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do in grad school, and he told me about LIGO. He said something along the lines of, "So this is in 1991." He said, "Well, LIGO has just been funded. It had been, you know, just the first phase of LIGO, initial LIGO had just been funded." So, you know, you probably will graduate from, you know, from the first data from LIGO. We probably won't see anything astrophysical, but you'll, you'll graduate with the first data from LIGO. And the discovery was 25 years later. So, yeah, uh, it was, it, you know, Ray was a little off. But, you know, the truth is I've told my own graduate students the same thing that he told me. Well, just by the time you graduate, we'll have results, you know. So what, what kept you going for 25 years? Did you get discouraged? Did, did you uh, meet problems? And what, 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 what kept you engaged for 25 years? Yeah. So I, I think you know people think that for 25 years these scientists that were working on on LIGO were in in the sort of scientific desert, and then suddenly they found the oasis and came into drink. It wasn't like that at all. You know, at every step we were inventing, we were reaching new. Um, sort of new milestones we were publishing. Look, that's the other thing is no one gets funded for 25 years without meeting, meeting sort of the standard benchmarks of scientific progress and academic progress, publishing, uh, training students, all those, those kinds of things. So all of those things were happening. In that process, we were spawning new areas of, of inquiry, of new fields. I think that's what kept me going. It wasn't this sort of, it wasn't this all or nothing, well, until there's a gravitational wave, we are worth nothing. It was every step of the way we were doing things that were meaningful and, and exciting. 
So that was the one thing. And the other thing was I, there were times when I'd get discouraged, like, wow, is, are we ever going to, to get there? But the thing that always got me out of that funk was I was working with brilliant people. And I had this sense that together we could solve you know, any problem. And it's particularly on the instrument side, which is where I've always spent all of, you know, much of my career. I just kind of felt like, yeah, so we hit a roadblock, which just means we have to to think about a different way to solve this problem. And we were. And I can't tell you the number of times we were like, oh my goodness, this is scary. And then days to months later, you come up with a way to get around that. So did you always have faith that eventually it would work? And I'm not talking about the intermediate technologies where you can see the progress as you went along, but the final goal of, of actually detecting a gravitational wave of knowing that you had done it. Uh, did you ever think along the way that, that you might not get to that point? You know, I think certainly I, I sometimes questioned whether whether we would, you know, make these discoveries in my lifetime. But I never had a doubt that we would eventually, you know, discover gravitational waves. They're out there. We had so much indirect evidence that they're out there. And it was just a matter of time. And so my the uncertainty wasn't about if we would, but when we would. Do you remember where you were and, and, and your feeling when you first learned that a detection had been made? Yeah, I remember exactly where I was and, and it was totally uh, anticlimactic because very, my very first reaction was, oh, this can't be real. And you know, so um, I, was, I was at MIT and I actually called my colleague, Matt Evans. We were, uh, we, we were administering a quantum mechanics exam that, that day. And I called him up early. It was like 6.30 in the morning, which I don't usually do to say, you know, I don't have the exam yet. You know, what, what's that happening? He was like, exam, you know, have you seen the, the, the log? And the log is the electronic logs in which are, you know, which LIGO's operations and, and science are recorded. And I was like, I haven't. And he was like, well, you should go look. So I did go look. Um, I, I didn't actually. So what happened next was I, so I said, I, I look, but you know, what is it? So he says, there's been a big signal detected. And I was like, well, it's likely a bl bl blind injection. And he said, you know, I already checked the, the, the injection channels. It's not likely to be a blind injection. And that's really. something you do to, to test the system? Yeah. So blind injections are, 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 are a technique that's used widely in, in, in science, where you check your, your ability to detect a signal by putting in a, a, a fake signal, but it's blinded. And what that means is there's a team of people who put in the fake signal, and the team of people who look for the signals don't know a fake signal has been put in there. So you can really test out your, your apparatus. And, and so Matt confirmed that he didn't think it was a blind injection, and he's usually very knowledgeable about that. So I was like, oh, that's interesting. But then we had all these other possibilities. It could be, was it an instrumental glitch? Was it a, was it a malicious injection? And that process of eliminating those possibilities took a couple of weeks. So I would say the excitement was mounting, but the very first, it wasn't this instantaneous, aha, we've seen something. It was mostly, you know, really, let's be skeptical, kids can't really be the, you know, right. And then as you eliminated the possibilities, I could feel the excitement growing. And then a, a little over two weeks later, maybe three weeks later, um, there was a, there was a collaboration-wide a phone call, it was a phone call, it was a, you know, conference call, on which the actual analysis, the, the detailed analysis that looks at the data over those two or three weeks and then compares the statistics of the, those data to the actual signal that we measured, that analysis was observed. It's usually done again blinded and then it was observed. 
And I remember that was the moment when, you know, uh, the goosebumps exploded because there we saw it, you know, we had done the detailed analysis, we had eliminated all these other possibilities of instrumentation or, or, or people making mistakes or the instrument making mistakes. And then I was like, wow, this must be real. And that was a, it was a spectacular part of the reason I, when I was thinking about becoming Dean, that I considered it was I, I felt like people had come before me to enable that experience for me. And I wanted to be able to do that for others. Just everyone should experience that tingle of discovery. One recurring theme of our Searching mini-series is that technology and engineering work best when they operate hand in hand with theory and experiment. Without inventing and building LIGO, gravitational waves would still be just an idea, a possibility. And knowing that the heavens and earth were made of the same stuff, that the moons had mountains and craters just like earth, and that there was no ethereal substance up in the skies, would not have been accepted as fact without the Italian scientist Galileo Galilei improving his telescopes, and in 1610, turning them to the heavens. Well, very few people uh, have the privilege and opportunity of, of, of discovering something of that magnitude. I mean, I've heard detection of gravitational waves or the, the building of the instrument uh, sometimes compared to Galileo's original telescope in 1610. Mm -hmm. Do you think that that's uh, a reasonable comparison? I think it's it's pretty fair, you know. I mean, Galileo, you know, I mean, humans have been observing the skies for millennia, right? I mean, since, since, since you know, earliest re recorded history that we know. And they've always observed stars and starlight. And why starlight? Because that's what our eyes see. But Galileo, we believe, was the first to point a telescope to the sky. And there was a paradigm shift there. It wasn't, the paradigm shift wasn't that we should look, should look at the stars. The paradigm shift was that we don't have to look at the stars with our naked eyes and that instrumentation can help us see things that our naked eyes can't. And I kind of feel like this is very sim similar, right? I mean, humans have not been perceiving gravitational waves from since the beginning of time because they're too faint. But we have, the paradigm shift is that we now have instrumentation that can allow us to see these gravitational waves, allow us to see those parts of the universe that are emitting them. And in, I, mean, I also will predict, you know, it's been 400 years since Galileo. I mean, 400 years from, from now, I don't think we'll be remembered, this moment in time will be remembered for what we saw, because people will have seen so, you know, so much more detail and distance with ever better instruments. It'll be remembered for, oh yeah, these guys, they, they built the first gravitational wave detector. They kind of saw a black hole and a neutron star here and there. They saw some that were, you know, oh, well, you know, a billion light years away, but that's only a tiny fraction of the universe. We'll, not, we'll just be remembered for having built that first one but not for what we actually saw, because there's so much more waiting to be seen. So if we look at the capabilities of LIGO mm -hmm. and possibly future LIGOs, the LISA, the observatory mm -hmm. that's supposed to be in mm -hmm. space, how far back towards the Big Bang do you think we will be able to look? Oh my goodness. This is the thing that actually got me into thinking that gravitational waves were the most amazing thing. 
when we look at the earliest moments of our universe, um, we believe it began with the Big Bang. And then for the first 400,000 years of, of its lifetime, the universe was too hot and dense for light to escape. And so I, I think of light kind of, I have a great analogy about going to a party that will tell you about light versus gravitational waves. So imagine you went to a party with light so light is, is extremely extroverted. Every time it meets matter, it wants to scatters off of it, it interacts with it. And so if, if you went to a party with, with, with light and you said, I'm ready to leave, light would, would say, okay, and then it'll be an hour before you got out of the party because they stop, they greet everyone, they, they meet and greet, and so you finally get out of the door. Gravitational waves, on the other hand, completely aloof. You go to the party with gravitational waves, you're lucky if they'll stop to say thank you to the host. They're straight out the door. And that's how gravitational waves are in the early universe. They don't interact with much of anything and certainly not very much with matter. So they are streaming to us as observers from the very earliest moments after the Big Bang. Whereas when you observe the universe with light, there's the surface of light scattering where light became free to stream towards us. And that was when the universe was 400,000 years old. So if you want to know what the universe was like in its earliest moments, all the way up to 400,000 years, your messenger has to be gravitational waves. And the gravitational waves that we would observe in, in LIGO would be into, which is the particular frequency band we look at, or a different particular color of light we look at, would be coming to us from a moment in time when the universe was 10 to the minus 22 seconds old. 10 and to the minus 22, 22 seconds. seconds old. You know, and so if you want to look back and see the very earliest moments of the universe, gravitational waves is the way to do it. Now, there's a there's a, a rub to this, which is for LIGO to observe these gravitational waves from the very early universe, which are extremely faint, we would need a sensitivity that's almost a million times better than what we have now. So I don't believe that that measurement will be made in, in my lifetime. But when you think about you know, what people will be looking at 100 years or, or a few hundred years from now, it could be that. That's the potential of this technology. I want to go back for just a minute to when you first heard that there was the detection mm -hmm. and, and you said it couldn't be real. Mm -hmm. Now, a lot of people, mm -hmm. maybe perhaps a lot of non-scientists, mm -hmm. would have really gone through the roof. Uh, they would have been terribly excited. What was it that made you think it couldn't be real? So I think there's a, there's a, there's a few things. The first thing is that scientists, and especially experimentalists, must always be skeptical of their instrument because you know especially when you're making really difficult measurements there are dozens of ways in which you can be mistaken about what you're seeing so i think that's actually you know one of the first things that we learn as experimentalists is that you know your your you know your instrument is only as good as 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 you the builder and you the observer to be skeptical so i think that's normal and it should be done that way i think in this field of gravitational wave detection, there's also, you know, a history that requires us to be more, uh, you know, more careful in how we look at our data and, and the claims that we make from it. And part of it comes from this 25 years of having no signal. So when you do get a signal, you have to really shift your mindset. But the other piece is that, you know, in the 60s, the, you know, there was actually a false claim of gravitational wave detection and the field even you know, ha has carried that as part of its historical baggage. And I think it was very important that we be extra careful given that. 
when I uh, graduated with my PhD at mm -hmm. Caltech, Richard Feynman gave the commencement address. Uh -huh. And what he said to us, it was a very, very hot day. We were all sitting in these mm -hmm. folding chairs, sweating like crazy through our black robes. <laughs> he said that you scientists, whenever you're coming out with a new result, before you publish it, you should think of all the ways that you could be wrong. Yeah. And that seems to echo your initial skepticism with LIGO. Completely. And you know what's, um, uh, what's amazing is in that period of time when we were trying to figure out what could be wrong or what could be right, I think we, we, did, we have more documentation of all the ways in which this could go wrong than we do of the actual correct result. And that's appropriate again. Let me uh, switch gears a little bit. Mm -hmm. What do you think are some of the questions that, that science cannot answer? You know, I, I, I'm an eternal optimist. I really, I, I believe in, not necessarily in science, I believe in, in the human intellect. And so the places where, the, the places that I think are so difficult, they're only difficult right now. You know, again, you know, a millennium from now, humans will have sort of taken that apart. So I think about the brain and how, you know, the most complex object that, that I can think of and yet we are learning so much about it. I mean, there's a lot we don't know, but we're learning so much about it. So uh, I'm afraid to, 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 to think about anything, anything that's unknowable, but I can certainly speculate on what are some of the more difficult things. And I think for, for me, one of the most difficult things, you know, I'm a physicist. I actually think of the physical universe as completely logical, understandable, governed by laws of physics, some laws we haven't yet discovered, but we will, behavior. I have no idea how, how to put that together. You and you're know? talking about human behavior. Human, but even animal behavior, just, you know, uh, you know, what are, you know, what drives people to do the things that they do? And, you know, you know greed, unkindness, all of those things, you know, those are the things that I, I've, I've, I wish science had a better answer for. And we may in time, but we don't right now. Do you think those things are more complicated than LIGO and gravitational waves? Uh, yeah, if they weren't, we would have solved them. And you can ask, well, what is even the solution? You know, but but you know, but it's true. Look, you know, when the when the great plagues were were raging, people had no concept that we would have cures for them, and we do. So I think again, we just have to always be asking the right questions, and discoveries will come. Well, if we look at the discoveries of of science in the last couple of hundred years. I mean, it's extraordinary what, what we've learned. And, and of course, LIGO is, is one of those. But um, having evidence that the universe is expanding and being mm -hmm. able to estimate when it began, our progress in genetics and, and learning where the uh, instructions are stored for creating new human beings. Right. Uh, Amazing. Plate tectonics. I mean, just, you plate know, just how the, how's the Earth put together. I mean, this is one of the most amazing thing, thing to me in science is that we have the ability to learn about distant stars and objects. We still don't fully understand our own Earth, and it's amazing. Do, do you think that this long list of incredible discoveries, that it's made us, has it made us bigger or smaller in the cosmos? I think we're the same size we always were. You know, and, well, we, as a species, we're growing a little in size, but I think what it has done is it has, it's a constant reminder to us that there's a lot we still have left, you know, to discover. Uh, and I think there's another piece of this that, uh, you know, I really worry about, which is uh, we are not grappling enough 
with the consequences of our discoveries and at, at every level. You know, when people, you know, famously think about, well, you know, the, the invention of nuclear weapons, but there's so many other things and things that are, are, are obvious, like cloning, but things that are, aren't obvious and yet so sitting under our nose, like, you know, the, the ills of social media, for example, you know, I mean, who would have thought, you know, people think about smoking, well, there's a, there's a, there's a chemical substance there that makes us sick. But, you know, there's chemistry in here, too. And so, so yeah, I think there's many, many things that, that, that we, we as humans should do better. How can we inspire more young people, and especially women, mm -hmm. to go into science? Yeah, so, you know, I, I think some of what we have to do is, is to get out of the way. You know, I have never met, I have two kids of my own, but I have never met a child who isn't curious. And, you know, some children are curious about the natural world, some children are curious about other things, but they are curious. And that curiosity is the thing that drives us towards science, you know, because we're trying to answer questions about nature. So part of it is to to not let that curiosity dwindle away, but to, to nurture it. And is there a single magic uh, bullet to that? No, I think, you know, we have to, Parents have to have an open mind and be encouraging. Schools have to, to have an open mind and be encouraging. And I think the other thing is communicating science, which you know you're a master of yourself. You know, I think we have to do better at that. You know, for too long, scientists have only talked to each other. You know, we hardly can make sense of what we we say to each other. And what's the rest of the world supposed to do? So I think that's a very important piece of the of the work uh, ahead. I think discoveries are not worth a lot if you can't tell people what it what, what it was. Well, looking at what we have done, do you think we should be amazed or humbled? All of it. I think we should be amazed at what we are able to do. We should be humbled by how much more there is to know. And we should be ashamed of how much we've screwed up. <laughs> <laughs> so all of it. Right. Okay. Well, well uh, that was wonderful. Thank Nervous. you. Well, it's hard to think of any better way to end this podcast than that. Thanks to Nergis and the LIGO High Bay team at MIT for hosting us. And many thanks also to Mary Jane Dougherty, Les Gutman, Kay Stats, and Red Glass Pictures for granting searching access to computer graphics and rare archival material documenting the decades of work on LIGO. And thanks to you for listening. Until next podcast, this is Alan Lightman for Searching.